This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got a guest today, which is kind of fun. We don't don't always have guests. Uh, Raj Hara, uh, Hara actually, uh, Senior Vice President of Sands & Associates. Of course, a licensed insolvency trustee and uh, a chartered professional accountant. uh, Certified management accountant and chartered insolvency and restructuring professional. Wow. That's quite a title. <laughs> Been busy. Very yeah. busy guy. Very busy guy. Uh, more than 10 years of experience in banking, financing, accounting, and solvency matters. Specializes in helping folks resolve personal debts. Um, and I like this. This is very sweet, and I think it speaks well of you. Assisting individuals and in assessing their options for dealing with debt is your primary focus. I don't think it gets any better than that, working for Sands and & Associates, and, and having that as something that you care about. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, so, uh, oh, I want to add too, fluent in Punjabi. Does that? Ca- I bet that comes in handy. Well, it does come in quite handy. Uh, just to speak with, just depending what office you're working out of. And traditionally, in our industry, there haven't there haven't been many Punjabi speaking um, trustees out there, so it's helpful. And right? that makes a lot of good sense, yeah. um, just because sometimes language can be a barrier to folks getting help or getting questions answered that they need answered as they're doing business in British Columbia, right? I, I wholeheartedly mean, agree with that. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, number one piece of advice: uh, You do not have control of what happened in the past. Let's understand where you are today so that you can move forward to a debt-free future. Also. So uh, a great sentiment to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so two focuses for, for being in studio today, Ross, so thanks for joining us. I think, you know, number one, I want to get a bit of a sense of your background, helping the listeners, you know, meet someone beyond myself as part of Sands and Associates, just to understand other folks they might come in to meet. Okay. And then also we talked a little bit about um, this concept called a liquidating proposal, which, you know, we talk a lot about bankruptcies, consumer proposals. This is another type of a consumer proposal, but I think it's really interesting. I think it's something a lot of people are really going to need to to explore over the next little while. Um, so we'll get to that also. But first off, can you give a bit of a sense of your personal background before you became a trustee? So how did you get into this this line of work? I don't know anybody that from when they were a kid to when they became a trustee knew that that was their path. So how did you end up to become a trustee? Well, um, I started out shortly. Uh, I never imagined I'd be a trustee, and mm-hmm. I never actually quite even knew that there was a role of a trustee. Yep. Uh, I started off in banking, believe it or not. So straight out of high school, actually in high school, I started working in banking and being there for a few years. And after university, I ended up started working in uh, commercial lending. Mm. So being in commercial lending, um, I had a couple loans, which I was working on, which were their companies having a hard time. Right. So we had to work with the company to figure out how we do make things work. Um, and how to move forward is no one wants to shut down their business. Uh, it seems in our world that nobody ever wants to sell their house, right? Mm-hmm. So working with those individuals, and I, I, I took an interest in it, um, that led me to pursue my accounting designation, and the bank was kind enough to help me out with that. So, oh, okay. Um, so one thing led to another, and while I was going through my accounting designation, I ended up with uh, a large accounting practice, uh, a national firm, a big four, and while there, um, I started working in the insolvency industry, and they knew I had a banking uh, background. And I t- started to just help out with corporate files, and we hit a bit of a lull. 
and they had a consumer insolvency practice. So I started off where a lot of practitioners do, doing tax returns. So <laughs> that's, I started off doing tax returns for consumer insolvency. And I came to realize a bit more about the industry and seeing how there's a difference here when you're helping people out and how thankful they are as they're just trying, they're honest and unfortunate people just looking for a fresh start. So being able to offer that to someone versus being working for the big bad bank, putting a company out of business, that was really my calling. So um, that's what made me gravitate towards consumer insolvency, helping people out. That perspective is so interesting, right, Elaine, because that's really both sides, right? So I think, you know, oftentimes I can fall into a bit of a trap of being, you know, a little bit anti-bank because all I see are the individuals every day that, you know, the bank is doing this or that to them. Uh, But you worked on the other side as well. And obviously not all of your loans, you know, um, people weren't able to pay them back. So there's a lot of positive things you probably took from that experience as well that helps you with the perspective, right? Yeah, well, definitely. Uh, uh, working with uh, larger corporate files and earlier on in my career just uh, led me to see the, the good in people as you may have a business that's failing, but you're still a great person and mm-hmm. you've tried your best. You've often eroded all your personal resources, perhaps use your RRSPs or haven't been taking a salary, been racking up your personal credit cards to keep the business afloat, to keep your employees happy. And you're trying to do the right thing, but at some point you just can't go any further. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was introduced to that at the bank with people that are having difficulty with their businesses. And out of curiosity, started to see what did, what did they end up doing? You know, how did this all resolve itself? And that was going into helping people out with uh, personal insolvency matters. Oh, so once it got off your desk, where did it go? And then you, you kind of followed that along there. Yeah, exactly. So that's interesting. No, it's really great that you've got that kind of perspective. Because like as you were saying, Blair, uh, not everybody comes from the banking side of, of the economy. Uh, and to bring that perspective to this work, I think is really important. Because often folks think, oh, well, nobody can understand my problem. You know, mm. nobody knows what it's like to have a small business or a medium-sized business and, and come up against all these issues, these debt issues, whatever they may be. Mm. Uh, but to have somebody like yourself that's actually knows what that's like, has seen it a bunch of times, mm-hmm. and uh, and then wants to help you figure out how to do it, I think that's uh, lovely. Well, I think also to have the perspective of, you know, what's the bank likely to do? How's the bank going to react to this? What's the bank normally going, perspective they're going to take? So I think that brings a lot to our clients here. So, And my bet is you still pay attention to the banking industry a great deal, just as a, a, a reader of newspapers or articles or, or whatever's going on. Well, I was actually uh, reading an article on the the banking earnings. They released two banks released today, and another three are set to release the large banks. And, yeah. Um, and then it's nice to look at that to see uh, as an indicator of what's happening in the economy. Mm-hmm. At this point, their earnings uh, seem to be, uh, I think they actually did increase marginally from last year. But an interesting note, which did come up in the article, is that their loan loss reserves have gone up. So uh-huh. for a bank, if they're seeing that their commercial loans are going sideways, well, then they have to account for it to reduce their earnings, and that's their loan loss reserves. Uh, and the article did start to indicate that it may be led by Alberta with the um, the oil industry there, as those are large loans. So it doesn't take, yeah. it is, it's not mm-hmm. hard to amount to a $50 million loan, and that's a marginal amount, uh, a material amount, sorry, that would end up on a bank's financial statement. So Got it. Yeah, so well, interesting you bring that up. I was just reading that on the way in. Yeah. There you go. So one thing I definitely want to make yeah. sure we, we get the listeners yeah. to, to be aware of today is the concept of a liquidating proposal. So Raj, up until a couple of years, so I don't think I'd ever seen a proposal structured in this manner, but can you give us a sense of what we're talking about when we say a liquidating proposal, who it would apply to, and why it would be a beneficial thing? Sure. Uh, more often than not, a liquidating proposal in our world, in the consumer world, is uh, if in personal insolvency is when you know somebody has a house. 
Mm-hmm. Nobody ever wants to sell their house. Their house is near and dear to them. So a lot of people have houses in Vancouver, tons of equity, and they've yeah. also got a debt problem. So that's the situation, right? Yeah, and 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 with recent market initiatives, I guess by um, you know policy changes by provincial and federal legislation, we're seeing a bit of a policy. What I like to call a policy influenced uh, recession, or uh, not a recession. That's a strong word. Let's not mm-hmm. get into that. But mm-hmm. just a dec- decrease in real estate values, especially in in the Vancouver area. Uh, individuals in the past were able to approach their bank, increase their homeowner's line of credit, and be able to deal with these costs increase. But now that as the equity has gone down, they're not able to go to their bank and obtain that homeowner's line of credit at the amount that they may need. So someone's incurred maybe 30000 50000 unsecured debt, something's bad happened in the past. Yeah. They've got this house, they go to the bank, get some money at a cheap interest rate and pay off the debt, but exactly. that's more difficult to do now. Yeah, that's exactly it, Blair. Uh, so they're having a hard time doing that. And it may be just to pay for their son's or daughter's education, you know, little things or, or weddings. Those things do come up. Mm-hmm. So at this point, nobody really wants to sell their house and the market's uh, depressed a bit in Vancouver in terms of real estate value. So what a liquidating proposal allows a person to do is seek protection from their creditors, first of all. Okay, So the proposal puts a freeze in place. The creditors can no longer uh, register any judgments on title of their home. They cannot try to garnish their wages. It's protection in place. In exchange, what the individual agrees to do is to make meaningful payments towards the creditors uh, over a five-year period. And during that time, the individual has two options. They could either, if the real estate market appreciates, they can refinance and pay their proposal off in full. Or if that's not going to happen, they can still sell their house on their own terms. It's very difficult to get around to the part of, uh, of to the thought of having to sell your home, but if you are indebted to the point where you don't have an ability to pay your debts back, those uh, unsecured loans, you, you need to be wary in the fact that worry about the fact that those creditors can't actually register a judgment on title. So what does that mean? So if, if a creditor does register a judgment on title of your home, when you do decide to sell it, they will be paid out in priority to you. And that can make it even difficult to refinance too. So for someone, you got a bunch of equity and you just let the creditors sue you. And then Mm -hmm. first off, they're going to have costs of suing you. And then when they win, because they will win, it's a valid debt, they put a charge on your house, but that can make it difficult again to refinance or when they sell, they get all their money either way, right? They can even try to force a sale if it's a lot of money, I guess, right? Well, even if they don't force a sale, you got to, they're, they're incurring interest at the, the rates of a credit card. So you've mm. all of a sudden got a involuntary, I guess you could call it an involuntary second mortgage on your house at 20%, 25, some credit cards up to 29, some, some consolidation loan companies are up to upwards of 50%. So if you make this liquidating proposal then, so let's say there's a $30,000 of debt to pick a number, so that gets frozen is what you're saying. So no interest, no additional charges. And then with the proposal for the next five years, they're going to make some, like you said, meaningful payments. So I'm assuming a few hundred dollars a month, something like that. And then at the end of the proposal, that's when they would have to essentially make payments to pay the debt off in full, which they could do by either selling the house or refinancing, but they buy themselves the time and the the protection. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So practically speaking, the person would make those payments for about four years. And after the fourth year, make a decision, am I able to refinance or do I need to sell? Right. And it's, that's and the, and when you start factoring in demographics into that, it could be somebody that's sixty five contemplating retirement, and they can't refinance. Perhaps their income's gone down, but they really want to stay in their place. They're getting adjusted to being on a fixed income, and they are not quite ready to sell yet. Mm-hmm. So they can sell upon their own terms. Or I've also helped out individuals, a young family, who were just recently purchased their house, and their son 
was almost at the point of being in high school and they didn't want to disrupt the child's uh, elementary. So they said, okay, well, you know what? This makes a whole lot of sense. We're, uh, we're preparing on moving at some point anyways. Maybe we'll do this after our son's uh, done elementary school and at least it will be disruptive to him as well. So, you know, there's some demographic reasons as well. Hmm. Illiquidating proposals, is it something, I mean, is there a percentage that people choose that option than, than just the regular consumer proposal? Um, well, it's it's a it's a uh, slight niche of the market. It, it has to be like a home mar- to yeah. has to be a homeowner with equity, but it's becoming more and more common now as uh, as the credit lines have frozen or, or they're dried up. So the sure. banks aren't helping out people to refinance on their homes, right? Yeah, so, I, th- I think Raj, it's almost it's a situation where it's a client where we would think we can't help this person before as a trustee because you got equity. Okay, go sell the house type of thing being cold, but um, this proposal allows them to retain the house, keep control of it. So that that's essentially the benefit. The debt's got to get paid if they have equity, but this allows mm-hmm. them to control the house for a much longer period. And it allows them to have control over the creditors to not register judgments on title, which are very expensive. Exactly. Excellent. We've been talking with Raj Hera, Senior Vice President of Sands & Associates. If you'd like more information about any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. The segment's called What You Need to Know Before Co-Signing, and this is such an important segment. Uh, I had no idea when I first started doing this show with Blair about the responsibilities that come automatically when you co-sign. Uh, all in the aid of helping someone out too, mm-hmm. right? It's all in that process. So whether you're considering co-signing on a loan for somebody in your family or taking on joint uh, credit or debt with your spouse, uh, it's important to understand what you're really signing up for. And it's pretty typical because folks do want to help out. Yeah. Like if you're in trouble, I want to give you a hand somehow and maybe this will help if I co-sign. And uh, boy, oh boy, it's a real, it's a real awful pot once it's, you get it's a into minefield it. yeah. right and suddenly what the way i describe it is you know you've taken your debt problem and if you get someone to co-sign you've now enlarged it to include an emotional aspect to it a relationship aspect to it so where this often happens i sometimes see it with young people that come to see me and you know a couple of years ago they had a debt problem the credit cards got a bit out of hand and they went and got a consolidation loan from the bank and the bank was great they gave them a consolidation loan but said your parents have to co-sign so what that means is now when they come to see me and I say, okay, you've got this consolidation loan, you haven't been able to pay back, and now there's some extra debt as well, I can help you with all of that. But what's going to happen is the folks that have co-signed that debt for you, the bank's going to come to them for 100% payment. That was the point of that bank getting a co-signer. They have other pockets to dig into. So the person who's in my office who might have a great solution to move forward, a proposal where they might pay back a third of the debt, in their mind, they know, okay, I've got to pay back a third of the debt to everybody. But then the bank of mom and dad, brother, sister, whoever co-signed, that's an obligation, whether emotional or financial, maybe for the rest of their life at that point. So can I continue on with the with a a proposal, for example, on the stuff that hasn't been co-signed or does everything stop? That's a sad part. So if you do a consumer proposal, everything is done under the Federal Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. And one of the core principles of the law is that everyone has to be treated fairly. So fairly means that if there's pain, meaning that the creditors aren't going to get back all their money, the way you deal with pain fairly is you share it equally. So everybody gets back 30 cents on the dollar or something like that. The pain's been shared. If you suddenly pick and choose this debt, I'm going to pay back 100 cents on the 
dollar because it's co-signed by my parents, that's not fair anymore to the other creditors, so you can't do that. Got it. If you're doing a proposal or a bankruptcy and then you're dealing with a trustee, you absolutely have to deal with all the debts at once, which again, if it's not co-signed, that's fine, but if there is a co-signed debt, that can be very difficult to consider. But let, let's give a little bit of background here on, on co-signing actually how sure. it works. I think there are some misconceptions. Okay. So the fact is when you co-sign a debt, um, you become equally responsible for repaying 100% of the unpaid balance. So that's important because a lot of people, when they co-sign, they think, okay, well, I'm 50-50 co-sign, you know, my worst exposure, if it's a $10,000 co-sign, is 5000 They can only come from my half that I've co-signed. Absolutely not the case. I've never once seen it work that way. It's what's called joint and several liability. So be aware, whatever amount that you co-sign for, you could be held accountable for the 100% of the debt that's outstanding. Okay. And there's another piece to it as well, talking about this acceleration clause Mm -hmm. within that. And I've never even heard that term before. Yeah. And I've seen that happen too. So let's say, you know, you're going along, things are fine, and the original person is paying on the debt and you co-signed for them. If the original person starts to miss payments or or has to do a bankruptcy or a proposal in other way defaults on the debt, you know, those monthly payments might have been something that you'd be okay handling, but oftentimes in these loan agreements, there's an acceleration clause, which means the debt is now due and payable in full. They're no longer going to accept monthly payments. So you might have thought when you co-signed, okay, my worst case is 200 bucks a month, I'll have to cover the payments. No, your worst case could be the full amount of the debt outstanding if the original borrower had defaulted. Okay, and that's part of the acceleration clause. Exactly. That, that gets gets covered there. So what about parents who are uh, being a primary card holder of a credit card and then they get another card uh, for, you know, Sally, who's going to university at McGill Mm -hmm. in September. How does that work? Yeah, that one is not as clear. And I love on this show, I can usually give very black and white answers. Um, I've seen various scenarios where having a supplementary card, so Sally, for example, um, whatever charges she puts on the card, if it gets paid or not, obviously the parents are responsible for it as the cardholder. But if the parents don't pay, Sally, by taking that supplementary card, could be responsible for that credit card balance as well. Oh, that's interesting. So you have to be very careful with supplementary cards look closely closely at the cardholder agreement, what you're signing on for, because sometimes you are, even if you're just getting the card, by using that card, you're agreeing to be responsible for all of the charges on the account and potentially the bank could follow up with you. Now, if it's a parent giving a child, giving a card to the child, typically the parent's going to be in better financial shape than the child, but not always. So just be aware there could be some, uh, a bit of a gray area on if you're using a supplementary card, is that akin to co-signing for the debt? So all of that should be in the 15 pages of information (laughs) on the credit card application. Like your iTunes agreement, the stuff you scroll through and don't read (laughs) it. There are some important things that are in there. Uh, Okay. Again, a better plan typically is just keep things separate. Sally needs a credit card, get a credit card, cash credit card secured or with a very low limit and just keep the accounts separate. Got it. Uh, That falls under this category of tips for people to be aware of in these uh, situations and things to consider before taking on debt with someone else too. Yeah, what you really want to think is just ask yourself the question, okay, am I prepared to pay this debt in full before you co-sign? And if you are prepared to pay the debt in full, then you can co-sign with a clear conscience, knowing if that happens, you'll be able to handle it. But if you can't answer that question without, you know, your heart racing, you're starting to sweat, saying, oh my God, I, if I was on the hook for this, it would be bad, you should not be co-signing. So I authored a book a number of years ago called When Life Bites You in the Wallet, and I've got a one-page graphic on there and very few words that said, when is it wise to co-sign a debt? Almost never is the answer. I've very seen very few examples where co-signing makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. 
Uh, let's. What else should we talk about? Let's in talk this? about spouses. Okay, spouses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that. Yeah, I don't have that situation, but mm-hmm. yeah. A How lot, does that work? Yeah, a lot of people feel that okay, you marry somebody, you've automatically co-signed for all of their debts. Right. You're responsible for their student loan. You're responsible for their bank loan, their credit card balance, all that. So, couple, why don't you just go and consolidate everything together, get a loan from the bank, and then just deal with it all together? Totally false, and often the worst thing you can possibly do because just because you marry somebody, it actually does nothing for your liability on debt. So if a wife or a husband, let's say the husband has a ton of debt and the wife has zero debt and a whole lot of assets, it would be possible for the husband to deal with all of his debt, you know, do a proposal, make arrangements with his creditors, and the wife's assets wouldn't have to be touched at all. Now, if the couple decides, okay, let's consolidate everything together, well, now suddenly the wife's assets are in play because she's co-signed for everything, and if that debt can't be dealt with, now new assets have been pledged that just weren't available before. So so my advice to married couples um, is, you know, a joint bank account is fine, and that's good for, you know, managing household expenses, but I would always keep your borrowing completely separate. The borrowing separate. Exactly. And, and you actually have to make an effort not to have them separate. If you've started out as two separate entities, and then you get married, mm-hmm. in order for those to blend, yeah. you actually have to have intent and oh, sign yeah. documents nothing, to do that. Nothing automatically is going to happen. Again, it's this big myth that, you know, husbands and wives owe for each other. It's absolutely not true. There's no shared credit rating for a couple. Uh, people could be at completely different financial stages and make the right decisions for them without impacting the other person. Interesting. Okay, so special responsibilities when it comes to shared uh, debt between spouses? Are there, other than what we've already talked about, special responsibilities involved? Well, you know, you're responsible for taking on things that you incur together. The yeah. last one is, you know, if the marriage were to dissolve, for example, yeah. um, and if one partner has incurred a bunch of debt to support the family and the other partner didn't incur that debt, um, but it was basically used for the family, there is the ability for one partner to take legal action against the other and say, okay. hey, you know, this debt should be split. I want you to have to pay back half of my debt. I haven't seen that happen much because, okay. you know, quite often if people are splitting up, there's not a whole lot of assets to be divided and trying to ask someone to pay back half of something that can't be paid back doesn't happen. But in the law, there is the ability for family debts to be split upon divorce or upon dissolution of a marriage. But if you're staying married, family debts are never joint unless you make them so. Make them so. Okay, cool. So if, if this is resonating with you and you want more information or you've got some questions, uh, go to the website first. Check that out. It's just chock-a-block full of good information at sands-trustee.com. If you want to give them a call, set up an appointment, 1-800-661-3030 and get that first free consultation. As well, don't forget, they've got offices all over British Columbia. There's 17 in total, and of course, that includes Vancouver Island as well. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In studio with us, Raj Hera, who uh, is a Senior Vice President at Sands & Associates. He's a licensed insolvency trustee, chartered professional accountant, as well as certified management accountant and chartered insolvency and restructuring professional with over 10 years of experience and fluent in Punjabi. So if you're thinking, oh, gee, I've got family that could use some help uh, and Punjabi is their is their first language Raj is the guy to go see which is I think terrific that Sands and Associates is 
is able to sort of get through those language barriers for folks. Um, we're talking about, I want to start, Raj, if I can, when, when you walked in here this afternoon, you were saying, you know what, I was listening, people are talking about the economy. You were just on SkyTrain coming into town, is that right? Correct. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought that was so interesting. Mm-hmm. It seems to be on everyone's mind, what's going on, I, I know it is on mine, uh, just if you're paying attention to what's going on in the news, it's a bit, you know, unsettling. Mm-hmm. Unsettling, I think, is probably the best word to describe it. Uh, but you overheard conversations similar as well, people wondering what's going on these days. Yeah, it was odd to hear an individual talking about an inverted yield curve. <laughs> and, Whatever that is. And I have yeah. to say, that I'm, I'm not going to try to define it here on air, but uh, it's generally, a, it's an indicator of a recession. And you're also hearing people talking about reducing interest rates. You know, sure. we went through this big push of the stress tests on mortgages. Now the Bank of Canada is talking about reducing rates. And, yeah. um, you know, if it's any indicator, just going through my social media feed, there's uh, investment planners talking about what do you do in a low interest rate economy? Why well, have a balanced portfolio? So I think... Uh, the market conditions are front of mind for a, a lot of individuals. I think so, too. I think so, too. People yeah, that wouldn't normally be thinking about it are thinking about it right now. You're even hearing of negative interest rates, which, my God, how does that work? They're paying you money to borrow. Exactly. That's happening in, in some countries around the world. So, And yeah, just to your point, Raj, yeah, I didn't even, I'd never heard the inverted yield curve outside of an econ classroom. I'm hearing it as well. It's pop culture right now. It seems to be forecasting when this economy is going to tip over the cliff, not if. That's interesting. Very interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. well, let's get started then. Uh, can can we go with the first question that we've got on the on the sheet about with Raj? Certainly. So the difference, uh, what is different uh, about helping people with businesses versus helping individuals who don't have their own business? I mean, it's. I mean, we're we're privy to a lot of information this these days and data from all sorts and ways of life, but there is a big difference between the two. And people's attitudes must be very different as well. Like, what's going to affect me and what's going to affect you? Two different things. Um, yeah, there is definitely a difference because uh, a business is a separate entity, and you need to understand how the person's operating it. And if anything, a business is like a child for a lot of mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. You often hear that the business is my baby, right? It's yeah. Per- yeah, it's yeah. personal. It's blood, sweat, and tears. It's they've put everything into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's very difficult to come to a point to say, well, maybe the business isn't viable. Um, usually an individual will come in and they'll have phone calls from creditors. They're being harassed and they know they're at a debt problem and, and, and it's just not going to resolve itself. Mm-hmm. But with business owners, what I find is getting to that understanding or coming to that acceptance that the business may not be viable. Yep. It's very difficult to come to. And I think that's a clear difference is for uh, a business to set up, a corporation is set up to separate yourself from risk. But often entrepreneurs bring themselves right into the fold of mm-hmm. the risk and they don't realize how far they've come in until they take a moment to realize where they are and take uh, take skill and and the stock of where they are and how they move forward from there. And something might have pushed them to, to force them to take stock, whatever whatever mm-hmm. it may be, right? And there's a lot of influences that impact folks in business. Yeah, I find the, the one thing consistently that I find with, with people um, who have their own business when eventually they're coming to see me is they often say, oh my God, I let this go too long. I invested too many personal assets. It's so hard, I think, to figure out when is the last dollar that you're going to invest into your business um, because you're an eternal optimist as an entrepreneur. You know, if, if August was terrible, you think September is going to be three times that you're going to get it back and so on and so forth. The next quarter, 
or the next year is always going to be better. So to have someone from a third party point of view, look at the cold hard facts and say, you know, you really have to consider where, whether this is a viable business, that can be difficult, that can be emotional. And even the way you deliver that, that news, Raj, I know if it's me, I'm not saying your business isn't viable. That's like saying, you know, I don't like your child, so to speak. No, it's mm-hmm. here's a couple things to consider. And, you know, are you comfortable with the level of exposure, the level of risk that you're now taking on as part of the business? I found um, in discussions with business owners, there's, there's really a couple of points that they, I help them think about so they can determine whether or not their business is viable. The first thing is straightforward is, uh, do you owe any money to Canada Revenue Agency for GST or source deductions? Yeah. Uh, forget the corporate income tax. Let's just talk about those two. Because yeah. GST, you've collected. It's not really revenue. You've collected it, and right. you're required to remit it to the Crown. Yeah. Or source deductions, you've taken that money off your employee's paycheck, and you're required to send that to CRA. It's just, it's, it's not real revenue. If you're relying on that to bankroll your business, well, then you've got to give it a hard thought. Okay, and and if that's not happening, well, that's a very positive if you're not doing that. But the next thing is it, it, it's a it's an interesting conversation with business owners, and I, I ask them the question: So, if you were to go work for a competitor, what would you want them to pay you? Mm-hmm. And they hum and they haw and they figure it out, and they come up with a number. I said, well, how much was your corporation able to pay you last year? Oh, paid me a third of what I would expect. Well, then now we have to have a conversation of. How can this business, you should be making more than what uh, somebody else would be paying you because if you're going to work for a third mm, party, the they, risk. They, mm. there's a risk. And plus the third party, if they employ you, they need to be, in order for commerce, they, they need to be making more money off of you than what you they're paying you as a salary mm-hmm. or else the business is not viable. Right. So that's, that's the interesting conversation and usually a starting point to then start talking about what the options they have with their corporation or personally, right? So that's interesting. So just in really simple terms, is CRA your biggest source of financing? That's mm-hmm. a big test. Is it the GST and the source deduction, those funds that aren't yours, but you're using? Is that the way that you're keeping operating? That's a really good litmus test to start. Um, and then your your other point as well is, you know, are you getting fair value for your services? And it should be even higher than fair value because you're taking the risk as an entrepreneur. I can think about a lot of individuals I've sat down with, you know, if they, even if they're not using the government to finance them, they're almost never getting fair value for what they're doing. They might have been in the past, but as the business declines, the, op, the entrepreneur is always the last to be paid, takes the least out at the end of the day. They, they also try to make... They, uh, end up making uh, matters worse for themselves is just the way that they draw their salary out of the business too. They may not take it as a paycheck. They may take it as a dividend because they've received tax advice that taking out as a dividend, you pay less tax. That's great advice if the company is solvent. But if it's having financial difficulty, well, that what that ends up doing is Canada Revenue Agency views that and they'll come after you personally as a director if you're taking money out of a company as a dividend where their thought process is, why are you paying money to the shareholders when you owe money to the to the government? So, you know, that's a bit of a pickle in, in itself. Well, and another point on that too, Raj, is if you're taking all your money in dividends, you know, when you hit age 65 and you want your CPP, what happens then? You haven't paid in. Exactly. Right? So uh, there's a couple things that you want to think about. You know, we deal with individuals sometimes where they've been doing cash jobs for a long time. And you, know, you tell them, well, obviously it's illegal, so on and so forth. But there is a financial impact as well that at age 65, you need those CPP benefits and they're not going to be there if you don't actually pay in. So it's important to have a salary even as an entrepreneur. I agree. When's the best time to come and see either one of you guys? If I'm a business, if I'm an entrepreneur, I would think before I start 
before I start it up or just after I start up because what you guys have been talking about are really, really important key things, especially the future stuff when you're talking about, well, when you're 60 or 65 and you're taking CPP and you Mm -hmm. just haven't paid into it. I mean, there's 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 a lot of things that one has to pay attention to when you're doing this kind of work. Yeah, and you know we've often said on this show, you know, it's it's almost a travesty that there's no crash course required. There's right. nothing you need to do to suddenly become self-employed. You know, you can even start up a corporation sometimes online without even sitting down with a lawyer. So all this structuring stuff that we're talking about seems, you know, just very basic things. Of course, you should do it, but unless you actively go out and research it, you're not going to know this stuff, and you often often will make some mistakes there. So, um, you know, a trustee is typically not someone you see when you start up your business. You'd be more sitting down with a lawyer. But absolutely, if you got questions on your structure or where you're heading, phone Raj or phone myself, and we'd be happy to help. Well, yeah, how to avoid this, this, and this at the end of the day. That's what, that's why I'd go and see you guys. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I, I know one thing, Raj, that people often really wonder and it hesitates for them to come in to see us is they say, you know, if I go into bankruptcy, does it mean I lose my business? Or if I do my proposal, do I lose my business? Can I still operate? Can I still, again, have my business if I deal with my debts? So how do you answer a question like that? Well, uh there's a requirement, uh, I guess there's a restriction that if you're in bankruptcy, you cannot be a director of a corporation. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you can be a director of a corporation if you're, if you file the consumer proposal. Right. So if you're a business owner, most business owners will go towards a consumer proposal. However, uh, you don't want to keep the business afloat if there's a whole bunch of debt within the company, which you are going to personally be liable for. It might mm-hmm. be worthwhile just to close the business for that. So, Common ones are source, uh, Canada Revenue Agency debts for GST and source deductions. If the corporation's unable to pay, well, that's the director's liability. So then mm-hmm. those are one things. Or um, a topic that we hear people talking about piercing the corporate veil. That means that uh, uh, directors have uh, signed guarantees, uh, personally guaranteed corporate debts. So if the corporation's unable to pay, well, then it falls upon the director. So. I think back to your question. Yeah, if you if you're in a director of a corporation, you can file a proposal, but you got to be careful about that. See what kind of liability you've opened your, yourself up to under the corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, a common one that people don't really realize is a commercial lease. Mm-hmm. Is that's a lease is a commitment for five years, and if you're only one year into it, you're still personally liable for the other four years, right? Which could be a large number. Yeah, I know. Sometimes when I sit down with individuals too, sometimes we even look at the structure and say, "You are incorporated now." But do you need to be? Should you be? There's extra costs. You've got a separate entity now, extra financial statements, accounting, legal fees. Sometimes people are better off being a proprietor. And so sometimes doing a proposal or even going through a bankruptcy, it gives someone a chance to just basically reset their entire structure and go back to something sometimes a little more simple, definitely a little more cost effective. Because oftentimes the reason someone incorporated, you know, to protect themselves from liability, to your point, Raj, they end up frustrating that because they do guarantee things or they get into trouble with the government, which you can't limit yourself from sourcing deductions or GST debt that follows the director of the corporation. Now we've just got about a minute left. Could we have a success story where somebody that you've helped and they've figured it out and they've come out the other end? Hopefully, yeah. hopefully. There's several, there's several success Yay! stories. Yeah. So, Good to hear. Uh, so we talk about consumer proposal. Yeah. There's a corporate proposal. So it's a division one proposal, but let's not get technical on it. And what it basically is, is a business owner saying, listen, I can't pay back my debts in full, but this is what I can offer to pay the creditors, okay? And Canada Revenue Agency is quite sympathetic towards it as well, too, because if it's a corporation with 10 or 15 employees, if the corporation goes into bankruptcy, well, then 10 or 15 families have lost a salary, 
and it's very difficult to obtain in certain industries hard to re, uh, obtain employment as well too so we've helped out companies where we've developed a plan it's gone to their creditors it's allowed them to stay in business and in fact their old suppliers continue to supply them as well too and they continue in, uh, going forward and still have a great business. We've been talking with Raj Hara, who's Senior Vice President of Sands & Associates, as well as a Licensed Insolvency Trustee. Uh, you're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment's called, What Happens When You Can't Pay? Uh, Which is a very simple statement, but boy, oh boy, it is just filled with all kinds of uh, issues that you need to pay attention to. A lot of myths, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of fears people have that just don't happen in this country, but, you know, people still have a lot of fears of what can happen if you don't pay your debts. And it seems like money problems are are pretty sneaky, uh, or at least it can feel like that, because Mm -hmm. you don't get those statements every day. You get them once a month. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of sail through for three and a half weeks or four weeks, and then all of a sudden, wham, things are out of control. And it would just be very, very difficult to uh, know what to do next, oh, and especially if you choose not to pay. Yeah, just to know what's, what's going to face you, because it might be a situation, you know, you had some great income before, and you incurred some debt, and now your income could literally be zero, because you're going through a medical issue, or family issues, or you've been divorced, and you can't work. There's a number of reasons why someone just might not be able to pay their debts, and it's really helpful to know, okay, well, what's the art of the possible? What is going to come at me, and what's just, you know, uh, folklore and something that will never happen? Okay, so let's start. Mm-hmm. When I can't make that payment, um, and of course, credit cards are the first thing that come to mm-hmm. mind because they're very uh, they're they're very consistent in terms of when they arrive at your home, and you know oh, right yeah. away whether you're in or you're out. Oh, and, and there's a process here, so um, you know. First off, if you can't pay your debts, especially on credit card, one of the first things that your lenders are going to do is make it more difficult for you to pay your debts by raising your interest rate. And I don't know why that seems to make sense to institutions, mm-hmm. because, it, I mean, it's a no-win as yeah. far as I'm concerned. You know, in some ways, I feel it's okay, maybe they're trying to get as much as they can when they can, but you know, quite often this is just you know interest upon interest that's never going to get paid back, especially if they come and see me eventually. Um, but it can be demoralizing from a consumer that you know suddenly they had a low-rate card of maybe 7 or 8%, they miss a payment on that and suddenly it's 22%. Exactly. Or 30% or something like that. But there's a default interest rate and sometimes, you know, even if you go over your limit, they start to charge you with a higher interest rate as well. But missing a payment, almost all cases, your interest rate will go up. Okay. Um, what else happens? What's the, like the worst case scenario, I think, are like number two, three, and four yeah. on this list. Well, let's get to them. Definitely yeah. the next one is the one that, my God, has people calling me in tears, distraught. I can't believe what this person said to me. And and that's dealing with collection agents. So what happens is you don't get to a collection agency if the bank still cares about you, so to speak. So for the first couple months, if you miss a payment with the bank, they're going to be very nice in-house collectors. Sorry, Mr. Mrs. So-and-so. I guess, you know, just we weren't organized this month, but next month if you catch us up, we're just fine. After about three months of that, the bank essentially says, okay, we're giving up on this customer relationship and we're calling in the attack dogs, which are third-party collectors. And, you know, they're very, some are very ethical, straightforward folks. Uh, I've heard recordings of others my clients have played for me where I literally can't believe the tone, the words, the lies uh, that people are saying over the phone. So if you're not paying your debts, you can expect that you will get calls from third-party collection agents after about a three-month period. And that can be very difficult to handle for just about anybody. Who has the 
a legal right to take money from my bank account without me knowing. And that's a really good point, Elaine. Generally, if you're owing money where you bank, you're at risk. So, you know, pick a big bank, you know, pick BMO, for example. If you've got a BMO account and a BMO MasterCard and you owe that MasterCard a ton of money and you haven't paid it, they have the right to come into your daily account and they might do it right after you deposited a paycheck or your EI benefits or something like that, and they can take money for a missed payment. Is there a period of time that they give me, a grace period before they would do that, or or does that follow, is that the next action after I haven't responded or replied to their phone calls. They, they won't do it early on because, again, it's kind of the biggest um, you know, punch in the face, so to speak, that, yeah. oh my God, the money I needed for my rent bank, you just took that without my authorization. Talk about not wanting to do business with the bank again. Right. Um, but it's why we advise everybody at Sands & Associates when they come to see us, one of the first things you do if you're banking where you owe money is open a new bank account. You don't need to tell anybody else where it is, definitely not your creditors, and start getting your income into a separate bank account so it protects that income. Banks love it when you put everything under one roof. They sometimes give you a discount on things if you've got a bunch of products yeah. with them. And the reason for that is it gives them the right of offset. They can offset a debt against your asset really at any point that you're in default. If you're banking with a bank where you don't have debt and you've got, say, this BMO credit card, but your money's in a credit union, for them to have the same impact on you to go and take your money, it would cost them thousands of dollars in legal fees. It would take weeks or months to get into court. They would have to literally sue you and get a court action to do what they can just push a button on if you're dealing with the same institution. Okay, so separate your stuff if you can if you're able to. And when does a creditor take court action? Is there a period of time that they have to wait before they do that? Or is it just whenever they decide? Yeah. So I don't know if there's a period of time they have to wait. You obviously have to be in default, but there is a period of time they can't wait longer than or else they lose the right to take court action. So we talked a few times on this show, our loyal listeners will definitely know about the statute of limitations, which means if they don't start legal action within two years of your last payment, they can never start legal action. They lose the right to do so. Now, that being said, what legal action means is they can do some pretty painful things. So if they sue you, and if they sue you, they're going to win because if it's a valid debt, you know, a credit card, they've got all the statements, they know when you're not arguing you didn't incur the debt. So once they win, they get a judgment. What they can do with that judgment is they can go and seize your wages. Talk about really rocking your world there. Suddenly up to 30% of your wages in the province of BC can be taken before it ever hits your bank account. And they can do that until they're paid in full. Um, they can come and seize assets. So, you know, typically what they would do is if you have real estate, as long as it's not completely mortgaged, they'd put a charge on title. And then if you try to refinance, you know, a few years later or when you sell the property, they're going to get paid out their full charge for that debt. Um, the last one, I've never seen this happen, but typically it could happen. You know, if you were required to attend in court, you were being sued, you were supposed to show up and basically say, yes, I agree, this is a debt, and you don't do so, an arrest warrant could be sent out because you'd be in contempt of court. Okay. I've never seen that in 12 years of practice, so typically it's more of a wage garnishee or an asset seizure, but theoretically, if you ignored everything, ignored a court proceeding, there could be a warrant for your arrest. Now, is there more to it um, for a creditor to start legal action for an outstanding debt? I mean, is there more pieces that we should mention? Well, I think one piece is that they're probably not going to do it. Okay. So generally, if 10,000 people owe money, one in 10,000 actually gets sued. 10,000 and 10,000 get threatened with legal action. So again, okay. the words a collector will use and the letter, the words on these collection notices, they're made to make you feel that immediately, oh my God, a lawyer's at my door the next day. Legal action takes time. You have to be served with documents, generally weeks or months before you can get into court. It's a train you see coming a mile away. It's not something that's just going to suddenly happen that you're sued the next day and your wages are gone the day after. Okay. What if I'm what if my outstanding debt is with the 
I don't know, Canada Revenue Agency mm-hmm. or, uh, I mean, student loan stuff. I know we've talked that's, about. That falls def- under CRA as well. Okay, yeah. so yeah, CRA then, what happens? Yeah, that's when you absolutely can't ignore because what I was just explaining to you, you know, about the right of offset, okay, bank somewhere else and you're usually okay and legal action takes time, you'll see it coming. With the government, they don't have any of those restrictions. So there, the government, right now. yeah, they could go and seize your bank account and seize your wages with very little notice to you. Now, it's not the first thing they're going to do. It's only if you went silent on that and made no payments, but they do have those rights to do so, but they've got no requirement to take you to court. They've got the ability and the legislation to seize assets, to collect payments, all of those things uh, where other lenders have to go to court and pay legal fees. The government doesn't have to do so. So the takeaway here is you can't ignore government debt where other debts has a statute of limitations. Maybe two years later, you'll be okay or at least move on. Government debt, there's no statute of limitations. So usually what they'll do is they'll end up seizing your tax return every year or maybe taking um, you know, various payments that would be due to you. But I have seen you know, day in, day out, bank account seizures, wage seizures, some very aggressive tactics by the government. And that falls under like probably the number one tip for folks that owe money and haven't paid, uh, haven't made the payment is don't ignore it. Exactly. Money problems don't get better. They get worse when you ignore them. So you've got to face it head on. And you've also talked about the de- uh, the legal options for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you've, you've talked a little yeah, bit about that. Just be aware that you have some. You know, even if it's government debt, you have legal options. And I think at that point, that's when I'd go and see a licensed insolvency trustee because you know all this stuff already. Mm-hmm and can direct me accordingly or direct someone accordingly to to take some good action. Oh, yeah. There's no other professional will ever tell you, here's all the rights and responsibilities of every collector within the whole financial system. Because if you ask the bank collectors, they're not going to tell you about a statute of limitations or tell you to change your bank account. They want to be paid and they get a commission on you paying the debt back. A trustee's obligation is to make sure you're informed of all of your options, help you choose the way to go forward, but we really don't have a horse in the game. I'm not here to help the banks get all their money back. I'm not here to help someone walk away from their debt. I'm here to give everyone the right information so they can make a good decision. And only licensed insolvency trustees have the um, authority or the power to deal with the banks, uh, off, but certainly CRA. Yeah, I mean, and that's us. an important piece of it too, if Absolutely. that's where your debt lies. Uh, for more information, check out the website, sands-trustee.com. Better yet, give Blair a call. Find him at 1-800-661-3030. Get that first consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.